Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to Gregory Wolf, a well-known Christian author who's written a number of books, and the book I'm going to be discussing with him today is his book simply titled Malcolm Muggeridge, A Biography, which was published in 2003. Now, last year... It was a chaotic year, as all of you will know. I managed to get through quite a few books. My traveling schedule was was primarily canceled. I was supposed to have two speaking tours in Europe and, and, and supposed to be all over North America. Most of that did not take place due to the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting travel restrictions and lockdowns. But I managed to make it through a, a pretty sizable stack of books that had been on my list for a long time. And one of the books that I finally got to uh, was the book Chronicles of Wasted Time, which is the autobiography of of Malcolm Muggeridge, the famous British journalist, and in my view, one of the greatest British writers of the 20th century. Now, I'd read some of his books before. I'd read his small biography of Mother Teresa, Something Beautiful for God. Uh, I'd watched interviews he'd done because he was a a very famous television personality for quite a few years. I'd also uh, gone through his book, A Third Testament, in which he profiled several famous Christian thinkers. But really getting a sense of his journalistic career and reading through what I I will absolutely defend as the greatest memoir of of the 20th century made me want to learn a lot more about him. I've since plowed through a couple of books of his columns. Just to give you an overview of his life, for those of you who haven't heard of Malcolm Muggeridge, he was an English journalist and satirist. As I said, his father, H.T. Muggeridge, was actually a prominent socialist politician, one of the early Labour members of Parliament uh, for Essex. In his 20s, Muggeridge was actually attracted to communism, and he went with his wife, Kitty Muggeridge, who was a phenomenal journalist in her own right, to live in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. He wrote an absolutely stellar book on his time there. Uh, called Winter in Moscow. And it was while he was in the Soviet Union that he realized his dreams of a socialist utopia uh, would never come to pass. And it it made him deeply jaded about politics, but also taught him uh, that utopias are essentially a, a false hope. His uh, description of his experiences in Moscow in Chronicles of Wasted Time are extraordinary. So is his book, uh, Winter in Moscow. He and his wife were actually planning to settle in the Soviet Union for good and join the Utopian Communist Project. They they burned their passports on their way out of the country before realizing what Stalin was actually all about. And then during the Second World War, he worked for the British government as both a soldier and a spy in East Africa and in Paris. He was an agent for MI6. And then in the aftermath of the war, He converted to Christianity under the influence of Hugh Kingsmill and became a strident critic of the sexual revolution and of drug use. It's very, very interesting. In some ways, he covers a lot of the topics that uh, the British commentator Peter Hitchens writes about today. But his, his writing on abortion is absolutely fantastic. He actually wrote one of the Two afterwards uh, to the book Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation by President Ronald Reagan. His work, I I think, deserves a lot more attention than it gets. I I think that he's as good a writer as as G.K. Chesterton, if not better. Chesterton often takes quite a bit of time uh, to get to the point. Malcolm Muggeridge uh, skins and fillets his targets and is incredibly incisive in everything that he wrote. And so... I've wanted to have somebody on the show to talk about him for quite a while, and Gregory Wolf actually was friends with Muggeridge, met him, and then, of course, wrote a very well-reviewed biography about him. So, without further introduction, here's my conversation with biographer Gregory Wolf about the English journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. (laughs) 
Uh, the first question that I, I can't resist asking is, what was it like to meet Malcolm Muggeridge in person? <laughs> well, it was a wonderful experience. I really had no idea who he was when I first encountered him, but I sort of was intrigued. I, I had a chance to be his escort to my college campus. And um, at the time, he was living uh, with in his uh, to be near his son in in Ontario, Canada, and I my school was in Central Michigan, and so I volunteered, having heard that he was an interesting journalist and a very witty, satirical writer, mm -hmm. seemed up my alley, um, much to my taste. I volunteered to be his driver, which meant that given the length of the drive, they Muggeridge offered to put me up, you know, after our long drive there, and we would drive back the next day. Right. So I, I was able to have a whole evening with him and his wife, Kitty, and then breakfast. He said they did evening prayers and morning prayers that I experienced together. And then I had essentially a five-hour car ride with him which was just nonstop conversation. And uh, it was, it was really, it was a life-changing experience. Uh, I had no idea what to expect. I knew he was a famous guy. He'd been on television. He'd even had cameos in movies. And I thought maybe he'd be very vain and self-centered, <laughs> but I quickly discovered that the journalist in him, when that was in some ways really his core vocation, meant that he really was curious about the world and curious about others. And so he asked me many questions about who, where I was, where I grew up, what my parents were like, uh, why I was attending the college I was attending. And we got into topics ranging from Dostoevsky, you know, to, uh, oh, you know, Solzhenitsyn and many other, many other things. And, um, so from that moment, um, we had established at least some kind of basic friendship, as close as thing as you could call friendship between someone with uh, people with that wide an age gap. But when I later went to university in England for graduate school, he was more than happy to welcome me to his cottage in the south of England. And so the relationship continued there. So it was really quite a beautiful few years between that initial visit and then uh, the times we were able to get together in the, the my grad school years. So when you referred to it as, as a life-changing experience, had you read much of what he had written prior to meeting him or you just knew he was a well-known journalist? No, I hadn't read a lot. Um, I mean, I certainly began. Uh, I don't know how quickly, I mean, it was easy to devour because he was such a great writer. I mean, right. such a consummate stylist and um, alternately funny and serious and uh, able to describe complex historical and political situations very well. You know, it, it all began for me really at the same moment, uh, the personal connection and then the desire to read more. And of course I did, I did scarf up you know, as much of his writing as I could find. What in your mind, uh, before we get into sort of the sweep of his life and then get into the specifics, is is his greatest work? So this past year, I, I'd read his work before, but uh, in 2020, 
I actually read Chronicles of Wasted Time for the first time. And I've read a couple of hundred different memoirs from the 20th century, and I would I would unquestionably put it uh, at the top of the list. I, I've never read a, a better memoir. Uh, and it's just every paragraph has to be reread because of the, the, the you know, the onion layers uh, of truth that he, he he sort of squirrels away. What would you say his best work is that you've read? Well, I think I probably have to agree with you. I think just for sheer literary heft and density and relevance over time, I would say it would be the two volumes of Chronicles of Wasted Time. There are other classics there, um, some of them more for bits and pieces. His book, Jesus Rediscovered, really is a collection of essays. Um, his book about Mother Teresa, Something Beautiful for God, is kind of just a short sketch. But no, Chronicles of Wasted Time really was where he sat down and and really began to account for the historical sweep of his life experience. One of the the things I find interesting about folks my age, and I am I am a millennial, and we're we're a, we're a, a largely accurately much maligned group, is that Malcolm Muggeridge would have been immediately recognizable to almost everybody twenty to thirty years ago if you were moderately well read, just because he's one of those journalists who was published almost everywhere. He interviewed basically every major figure of his time, and actually joked that that he'd found them all kind of boring except for Solzhenitsyn. How would you how would you either explain him or describe him or introduce him to somebody who'd never heard of Malcolm Muggeridge before? Well, it's a really good question. You're right. In this, particularly in the '60s and '70s, he was at the absolute height of his public recognition, uh, both on on both sides of the Atlantic, because he was constantly coming to America and and he was doing documentaries that people were were watching. He uh, did series about St. Paul. He did a series about the great thinkers and writers who had influenced him, figures such as uh, William Blake and, and Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard and John Henry Newman and others. And he was considered at the time the greatest living sort of Christian apologist in the sense that he he was very different than C.S. Lewis, but he was he was sort of considered at least equal or at least close to Lewis in the sense of a champion of Christianity against the f- sort of general the general flow of the sort of intellectual zeitgeist or spirit right. of age. Unlike Lewis, whose reputation has stayed steady or only gone up over the years. Muggeridge was quickly forgotten, and that really is heartbreaking to me. And I, I think it was for several different reasons, and some of them are rather complex. I mean, on a simple level, he was a journalist, and so a lot of what he wrote was journalism. And journalism is a noble profession, and it, it you know the, the the fact that many journalistic pieces don't stand the test of time doesn't mean that they weren't absolutely crucial that they be read and understood on that particular day in history, if you see what I mean. But it also it also means that unlike Lewis, who is tending who is an academic and tending to write books that had a longer shelf life, a lot of what Muggeridge wrote kind of, you know, got aged quickly. I mean, unlike people like Chesterton, Lewis, and Tolkien, who each of whom were kind of very Donnish, um, as in Oxford Don, professorial pipe smoking or uh, Tweedy, kind of 
got a warm and fuzzy factor. You thought of them as sitting around the pub and hoisting a pint and sitting beside the fire and spinning tales of hobbits and Narnian creatures. Mugridge was a very different kind of personality. He, He wasn't a kind of jovial, slightly overweight Oxford Don. He was was a very modern man. He was uh, satirical, hard-edged, aware of kind of modern alienation and sort of the the way that modern man sort of ricochets between sort of narcissism and despair. And in that way, you know, he he doesn't have the kind of romantic uh, sort of warm and fuzzies that those other figures have so being more hard-edged for the american audience in particular which we we tend not to value satire and hard-hitting humor and invective as much as the british do uh we tend to i mean we can be very nasty (laughs) we can cancel people and we can denounce people but the idea of kind of british satire always takes us aback as being almost, you know, beyond belief in its willingness to kind of stick the knife in. So I think that Muggeridge uh, just, unfortunately, uh, doesn't appeal in a way. And I, and I find that tragic because I think he had, I'm not trying to say, again, he's the equal of a Lewis or a Tolkien or a Chesterton, but he was definitely somebody with his own intellectual um, range of interests. And frankly, he had, you know, geopolitical and historical knowledge that they didn't. And so mm-hmm. I think he adds he adds sort of to the larger range of sort of broadly speaking conservative resistance figures of the 20th century. Uh, but as I say, I think the sad fact is that American tastes and, and attitudes have really kind of led to the fact that he's been sort of dropped and forgotten. Yeah. And I really wanted to ask you this. I'm glad you brought up Tolkien, Chesterton and and Lewis because, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've always sort of felt that despite uh, the fact that Tolkien uh, and Lewis and, uh, and, and Chesterton uh, lived, uh, you know, throughout World War One and in the, in the first half of the century, all three of them were in very distinct ways men of the first half of the 20th century. And so in some ways, they're very safe reads uh, for people, whereas as Muggeridge uh, was very much a man uh, of the second half in terms of when he goes after our idols, uh, they are idols that are still around. When he goes after um, the obsession with politics, which which would apply to the right or the left, when he would, he goes after uh, communism, uh, and he was one of the few that was right on that issue and clear-eyed on that issue, when he goes after the sexual revolution, when he goes after television, uh, it's really hard to read Muggeridge and not feel like he's cutting at your flesh, whereas you can still read Lewis and Tolkien and Chesterton and get caught up in the sort of the the sweep of the way that they write. You can distract yourself with their stories. And there's still sort of a healthy distance between them and the post-sexual revolution landscape that we all inhabit now. And so Mugridge cuts a lot deeper and and looked at his own life in such an excruciatingly clear-eyed way and was so relentlessly self-deprecating that I, I've always felt that he made people too uncomfortable. What would your take on that be? He makes people uncomfortable on several levels. I mean, one is, you know, he 
certainly at late in his life, he, he did, in a sense, repent publicly and confess things that I think Americans in particular find hard to forgive, or at least they find it hard to hero worship a figure who had done and said unpleasant things like that. Um, again, we tend to like people, you know, kind of safer and more like plaster saints. Um, right. But I mean, for me, that's why Muggeridge is important is there was a kind of honesty uh, there, um, an almost Augustinian, well, no, a truly an Augustinian restless heart um, who, yeah, he went to extremes in a sense. Um, he, for most of his life, he wasn't particularly virtuous when it came to sexuality, and that's probably being mild in the way I put it. Um, and yet, at the same time, he also was haunted by a desire for God. That is, desire itself <laughs> um, was, you know, a driving factor in his life. And he recognized that in some ways, modern man is driven between these poles of abstract ideas on the one hand and purely bestial carnality on the other. And he, he really intuited that in a way that echoed some other thinkers of the 20th century, such as Jacques Maritain or Walker Percy, Flannery mm. O'Connor. But that's raw. It's raw and it's uncomfortable. And yet for some people, it, it it is powerful because it rings a bell. You know, we've experienced that. And for those who are open to it, uh, you can find in, in Muggeridge a, a, a kindred spirit. One of the the other uh, things I had really wanted to ask you about Muggeridge's uh, approach to politics, which 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 may have had an impact on the way Americans viewed them, is that he resolutely refused to avoid a harsh truth. So there was, uh, I, I forget I forget his name, the the one other journalist who who uncovered the Ukrainian famine. There was recently a film made about him, and one of the reviewers of the film said that he was a hero because he, even though he was left wing, when he confronted the truth, when he had a choice between hope and truth, he picked truth. And I've always felt that that was obviously very much true for Muggeridge as well, not just because of uh, you know his disillusionment after going to uh, Soviet Moscow and, and discovering the truth about that utopian project, but also because he, he also refused to to give a pass to anybody who might be considered on his ideological side of the fence. So I remember one long conversation he had with William F. Buckley, where he was going after Richard Nixon for all of his assorted crimes. And, and, and Buckley sort of said, well, what's, what's your practical solution to this binary choice then? Uh, how do you think a Christian should act in a society? What do you think Christianity looks like in modern society? And his response was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is kind of a, a showstopper. There's not really much you can say to that. Do you think the fact that he refused to bend to political practicalities had anything to do with uh, people's later disillusionment or discomfort with him? Muggeridge, as a journalist and an old, an old hand at that, somebody who'd started on the left, moved to the right, but never fully um, kowtowed to either side's kind of what I would call movement apparatus, kind of institutional clique. Uh, he, he he was somebody who had principles that certainly pushed him toward the right side of the scale, but he never, like I said, he he was too aware of human fallibility and the, the 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 attraction of power and the corruption that comes with power. 
the fact that even people with good principles under the under the allure of power can compromise those principles uh, whenever is can ultimately becomes convenient uh, for self-aggrandizement. He was somebody who could never be partisan in this sort of uncritical and sometimes, frankly, fanatical way that some people are these days. Um, he was too aware, again, of ambiguity of human motives. And, you know, he, he, was, he was a skeptic in that way, but I think in a healthy way. After all, if you, if you really believe that conservatism is uh, a sort of belief in the importance of humility, I would argue that the fundamental conservative insight is how little we can actually control the world, even though we want to, and the danger of our attempts to impose our will upon the world through government or big business or or biotechnology or what have you, then in a sense, Muggeridge was a true conservative because he, as biting as he could be, you know, it was still based on the notion that um, we should never give in to kind of the, the pride of power hungriness. So he was never a party man in that sense. But but for that very reason, I think he actually upheld principles and and warned people of the practical dangers of political life in a way that, frankly, we could desperately use right now. So what what made you decide to write a biography of somebody who was your friend? Because I've always I've always thought that it was it's quite a dangerous proposition to write a biography of somebody you genuinely love and admire, especially considering uh, the fact that, you know, Muggeridge had plenty of of things in his past that are distasteful. I think there was a recent well, it was a couple of years ago. Uh, then an article came out talking about how he'd been an inveterate groper at the BBC and things like that. And these are the sorts of things that, although he publicly repented of, and, and, and he's quite open about these things in his autobiography, would be would be difficult to write, uh, I think. So what made you decide to write a biography of this person uh, that you knew personally and considered a friend? Well, I waited until he had passed on, so that that it took away one one barrier of you know anxiety about telling things about him while he was still alive. Um, But at a deeper level, I think gratitude in a way was my primary motive. Gratitude for the amount of time he'd spared for for myself and uh, for my wife. Also, I was already aware in some ways, even as early on as when I first published the book, of some of the issues that I've just, you know, been talking about when it comes to what happened to his reputation, what how how he was received in America, and how that was beginning to already kind of fade, and I felt the need to really set the record straight, and I felt that a, an honest biography that showed you know that his struggle was real, and that it wasn't like he had been a son of a gun for sixty, seventy years, and then suddenly decided out of convenience you know, to convert and denounce all the immorality. I was able to show through reading his diaries and his letters that this Augustinian struggle had been going on from the earliest, his earliest years. I mean, during his Cambridge years, University of Cambridge, he had seriously considered becoming an Episcopal Anglican priest. And he'd already gone through sexual issues that 
caused him a great deal of anguish. And, and so what I was able to show is that both the struggle with sin and temptation and, you know, the endlessness of desire and the desire for God and sort of the endlessness of God was a string that went, a kind of thread that went throughout his whole experience. And that's what I think. And when Christopher Hitchens, a famous left-wing journalist, reviewed my book, which, of course, scared the hooey out of me because he was just like Muggeridge. He was somebody who pulled no punches and could be quite scathing. He apparently, from what he wrote in the review, he had approached Muggeridge as precisely as somebody who just had a conversion of convenience at the end of his life. But he said that my biography showed that, you know, there was a more consistent struggle from the beginning and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that that really, that changes that makes it impossible to just dismiss him. I think his exact words were your book had made him reconsider the subject. Exactly. And now, you know, aside from, he got a few digs in at me and, you know, I winced like anybody else, but I was certainly relieved <laughs> yeah. when, when, when he said that, you know, I was like, phew. <laughs> when you look at the, the many issues that he, he, he wrote about that are still present, which is why I, I wish that more people read him. And I hope those listening uh, will have their interest peak to both get your biography and, and read some of his works. His writing on abortion and the sexual revolution, for example, are, are nothing short of magnificent and become a lot more compelling when you consider what he went through, right? He talks about in his autobiography about how he did everything to destroy his marriage, you know, with affairs and running around. And, and yet uh, it was the best thing that had ever happened to him. He couldn't, he couldn't at the end of the day, live without his wife, Kitty, who was a brilliant writer in her own right. He's a man of his time in terms of he shared the struggles uh, of, of those generations. When you look at his, 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 his writing on those issues, where do you think his prescience really shines through? Where was he first and best uh, in his commentary? I think he was ultimately at his best when he explored what Pope St. John Paul II called the culture of death. I think he, he had an, an overall intuition about what you might call the life, the life issues, that abortion, euthanasia, various issues of end of life care, and they, they were all interconnected and had their roots in certain uh, modern utilitarian ideas, individualistic mentality. And I think he was at least effective when he just was railing against hippies or free love, because then he, he ran the danger of becoming kind of a scold and opened himself up to, you know, the obvious criticism of, well, you never, you know, did that until your sap dried up, so to speak. But that deeper understanding of the kind of the culture of death, the sort of, the sort of dismissal of a vision of reality that in which human life had higher purpose than just individual self-satisfaction, that perhaps there were moral boundaries about the creation and the sustaining and the respecting of human life that undergirded all these different issues. There, I think he was really onto something. And, and that is still, again, very much with us because the, the, while abortion is a perennial topic. Uh, there are always new issues to do with end of life that uh, assisted suicide and other things that are cropping up. So I think he's absolutely prescient, as you say, in this area. And frankly, you know, um, deals with it more directly than any of those other 
mid 20th century Christian thinkers that we were talking about, because again, Muggeridge was willing to, to go out on a limb when it came to hardcore political decisions that ultimately we have to, we have to decide about. In your discussions with him, especially towards the end of his life, how did he look back on his own legacy and see his own legacy? When you read when you read Chronicles of Wasted Time, you get the impression that he very much didn't take himself at all seriously. But surely he must have looked back at his body of work and and saw some value there, or hope there was some value there. Do you have, did you have any discussions about about legacy with him? I don't know how much we approached it directly. I, I do think you're right about his fundamental attitude. He had a great love for St. Francis and, in a sense, the, the idea of being a fool, fool for God. And he, he in a way, he needed to because he, he had to recognize that a lot of what he had said and done in life was kind of foolish. But there's also, again, precisely this sort of deeper truth, you know, St. Paul's idea of being a fool for Christ in a way. Um, and he, he was able to sort of laugh and I think that was a grace. I mean, I you know, there were obviously twinges of guilt and an awareness that, you know, there were some missed opportunities that he had been on maybe too many talk shows and, and actually written too few books, given what skills that he, he had and, and abilities he had. Many people wished he had written the third volume, for example, of the Chronicles of Wasted Time. Mm-hmm. He really had a, a strong sense of humor and and that included himself. And I think that in the end, that that's the deeper message. Whatever heartaches or regrets hit him the way they would hit any human being, that that was the overall impression that I had. He was he was a very funny guy, um, naturally funny. He was always interested in the larger world. That's the the reason why I think we should appreciate his journalism more because he really lived up to the ultimate vision of a journalist, which is to look around you and not not let your own preoccupations get in the way of your seeing reality. And in that sense, he was always, I mean, I'll tell you like he, the one thing that was kind of fun visiting him at the end of his life when his hearing wasn't very good, I would be woken up in the morning by his big old radio, which was in one of these consoles the size of a huge credenza, which big speakers. And I would leap out of my bed because the BBC would come on it. 7 a.m. stumbled down to breakfast with him while the BBC news was going on he would just rattle off this commentary which I wish I had recorded you know just um hilarious riffing on all the different topics that were being discussed in the news and uh that's I mean again it's absolutely delightful his humor was had a mellowness in those later years that that was really, I mean, I remember lightning struck the transept of York Cathedral at one point, and it was right after a, a bishop of York had made some controversial statement denying the reality of the resurrection or, or the virgin birth or something like that. And Muggeridge had a framed photo of the <laughs> cathedral on, on fire. And he turned to me and he looked at the picture and he turned to me and he goes, wrath of God, dear boy, wrath of God. <laughs> I, I've given you a, a very tortured existentialist Augustinian muggeridge, and that's true. But there was also a hilarious clowning and self-deprecating muggeridge as well. And I, I wish people knew the whole of him more. You do have to take it pretty seriously to get the picture printed and framed, though. Oh, yes. Well, I think, you know, he was always satirical, and, and that was too good an opportunity to, to pass up. 
When you were researching uh, the biography, what did you come across that really surprised you? I'll just quickly get out of the way the point that I'd already made, which is I discovered that the struggle sort of between his desires and his sort of fleshliness um, and this a parallel struggle of the spirit went right back to the beginning together. And that to me was really crucial because it, it gave a certain integrity to, um, to his own account of himself and his, his, his story that a lot of people were trying to dismiss. And I think that that was, that's fundamental uh, to understanding a story that the, the struggle with the flesh and the struggle with the spirit began early. And in some ways, I would argue he delayed or held off any kind of religious conversion, partly because he couldn't live up to it, you know, and, and in, in a, you might say, well, that's not something to be commended. Well, in some ways it is. <laughs> it Maybe it's a small uh, virtue, but the desire not to be a public hypocrite was uh, at least right. something to be put on in his favor. And I discovered that this this really was important. It made him a top journalist, but it also led to his being a clever secret agent during World War II. It also led to British government during the Cold War, having him lecture for them repeatedly on the nature of communism and uh, totalitarianism. There was a, for all of his talk about Blake and, and mysticism, there was a, a really highly competent modern political journalist there. I think that that's an interesting thing. I think it grounds him in a way. He may have longed for mystical heights because he was down in the mud, but we need people down in the mud. Like we need people who are able to get the story, get it right. So I think I, I really grew in my admiration for his his professionalism, you might say. The fact that the struggle between flesh and spirit was lifelong, that was really the fundamental clue that his life had integrity and that there was a real fascination to his wrestling, you know, between these these two poles of his, his existence. What was his wife Kitty like? Uh, she was an extraordinary woman who often gets overlooked, but she stuck stuck with Malcolm through through their their entire turbulent marriage. And at the end of the day, despite all of the 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 falls and the, and, and the shortcomings, they did have an amazing marriage. Would be the wrong way to put it, but a solid, uh, enduring marriage. Yeah, I can't speak highly enough about Kitty. Kitty was one of the finest human beings I ever knew. I'd call her a saint, except people would immediately kind of glaze over and kind of put her on a pedestal. I mean, back in the day, they could sort of go eye for an eye when it came to affairs. And and yet you're right, there's this mysterious bond there, this sort of unshakable connection that however however stressful and the kind of middle of their lives it became and, and, and breaking out into open warfare at times. Mm -hmm. uh, they needed each other and they, they complimented each other. She was a tough, tough lady. Um, she'd endured a lot. And I think he would be the first to admit that when it came to these areas, she, she had much more to put up with in the end than he ever did from her. And she was never a kind of wilting violet. She was somebody, you know, just quiet, quiet 
dignity, her, the peace that, you know, I experienced from her felt earned and not just an act, not just, you know, kind of playing the role of the elderly Christian matron. She, she was a delight to be with, gracious, observant, and funny in her own way. And really her existence guaranteed that Muckeridge didn't go crazy and do even more self-destructive and foolish things in his life. So very much a, an intense 20th century story, and yet also kind of beautiful and poignant, too. The final question, uh, which is open-ended and you can take it whatever je- uh, direction you like, is why should people read Malcolm Muggeridge to understand everything that's going on today? To expand our sense of what sort of literary style makes for a a kind of broad-based, mature ability to perceive the world. Like, if we are too addicted, for example, to kind of romanticized, oldie-worldy mentality of the kind that I think, frankly, is the case with the way people treat Chesterton and Lewis and Tolkien, where there's just too too much a kind of fairies and elves and and a kind of too much of an escape from the harshness of the reality of, mod- of modern life and, and postmodern life. Muggeridge offers this really important expansion of our vocabulary. He, as I said, he was journalistic, not academic. He was satirical, not romantic or idealist. He was political, not literary in the sense that those guys were. He really compliments them in, in important ways and shows us that it's possible to be a champion of traditional theological and philosophical ideas. and very much a person of his own time. And I think one of the things that I've always found depressing about the conservative tendency is the kind of literalistic notion that everything was better in the old days and it's all been downhill and really we should, you know, live in this kind of past era. But the problem with that is I've, I'm old enough now that I've seen people, <laughs> I've seen different eras suddenly romanticized that were previously considered horrific. There's there's a kind of question that you really have to ask, you know, which is, is the graph pretty obvious? Was the high point the year, what, 1200? And is the line pretty <laughs> much just straight down? As much as I adore these this other trinity of thinkers, Chesterton, Lewis, Tolkien, I think the danger is that people get wrapped up precisely in fantasy in a way, um, in escapism. And that becomes a, you know, and an, an almost like a tribalistic thing. We like telling stories of the olden days around the campfire. But I've always felt that that's like preaching to the choir. It's very safe for people who come from a very different point of view. It doesn't really reach them. In a sense, Muggeridge strikes me as somebody who was very much a modern person, very much sort of trapped in this existential crisis between flesh and spirit. And for that very reason, he can go beyond the choir in a sense. You know, he can be all things to all people. His story has the authenticity of somebody who didn't hide any of these struggles. And in that way, I think it can actually reach out and touch the skeptical types. I mean, look at Kit Hitchens, 
the way Hitchens responded to my biography. The point not being that yeah, he said nice things about my biography, but the, the deeper point was that there was a grudging respect for for Muggeridge there. I mean, in some ways, as I've I've tried to argue that Muggeridge was at least as prescient as George Orwell, but I think that Muggeridge was actually sharper than Orwell. Maybe not as great a writer, all told, but nothing to sniff at either. So in that sense, the fact that somebody as worldly as Hitchens can show a grudging respect when he finds out about that full story of Muggeridge proves this point, that that there's a sharp, hard-edged, satirical, modern sensibility in Muggeridge that is married to a kind of Augustinian Christian vision. And to to truly appreciate that is to to balance our our total diet of literary styles and frameworks that give us a, a, a kind of more humane, mature approach to the world than than getting obsessed with hobbits and fairies and pipe smoking, you know, Oxford dons and uh, that that becomes just too much of a retreat from the complexities uh, of of real life. And Muggeridge gives us that and I and I thank him for that. You know, that tendency towards romanticism and escapism was one I felt myself and he prevented me from kind of getting sucked into that. And I'll always be grateful to him for that. Well, Mr. Wolf, on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss him with us. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for asking. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Gregory Wolf about his biography of Malcolm Muggeridge and the life and times of one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you want to check out other podcasts, please do head to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab where you can subscribe to get other shows delivered to you. In the last year, we've had conversations with Mary Aberstadt, with Douglas Murray, with Conrad Black. We've covered every imaginable topic and we've discussed writers from Malcolm Muggeridge, G.K. Chesterton, and so on and so forth. Please do check out the past shows. If you enjoyed this show, there's a lot there that you'll enjoy. Thanks so much for listening. Hopefully, you'll join us again next week.